This is Light On, Light Through, Episode 21, How to Research Ancient History for Science Fiction. How do I come up with these topics? Well, actually, tonight, Saturday, February 10th, I'll be talking at the Garden State Plaza Borders Bookstore at about 8 p.m., about this very topic. My novel, The Plot to Save Socrates, is coming out in a trade paper edition, and the uh, Science Fiction Society of Northern New Jersey invited me to come give a talk to their group at this Borders, and uh, the topic of my talk will be, How Do I Research Ancient History?, to write science fiction. Now, there are several assumptions there that uh, I should mention. One is you don't need to research anything to write science fiction. I mean, you could make the stuff up. But I think that wouldn't be very good science fiction. And this is something, of course, that pertains to all fiction. In order for your work to be convincing, in order for your readers to believe in what you are writing, you have to be accurate when you're talking about facts. And that's true, you know, if you're writing a story that takes place in New York City uh, in 2006, and you have a character walking down 42nd Street, you better make sure that what the character sees is really there. Because anyone who reads what you have written... And if what you've written describes things that are not there, well, then that will shatter that reader's willing suspension of disbelief, which we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, the great poet, Taylor Coleridge. So it's always a good idea to get your facts right. And, of course, this pertains not only to science fiction, but any kind of fiction. So I just as easily could have entitled this episode of Light On, Light Through, How to Research Ancient History for Fiction Writing. Or I could have even made it How to Research Ancient History for Any Kind of Writing. But science fiction is what I know, and so that's what I like talking about. And obviously, there are certain things in research which are important regardless of the research that you're doing, checking your sources, uh, trying to go to a physical, old-fashioned library, because they still have things there that you can't find online. But let me mention two things in particular, which were really crucial in the research that I did uh, in writing The Plot to Save Socrates. And I'm also using these techniques now uh, as I'm writing the sequel to The Plot to Save Socrates. First has to do with the age of the encyclopedia that you might consult. Now, in general, we tend to think that newer editions are more accurate, contain more valuable information. But I found, and I know other writers agree with me, that the real treasure troves of information about the ancient world, the, the little details, the names, the places that you might not find in current editions of encyclopedias, you can find in older editions. So if you take a look at the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is really, you know, the Cadillac, the gold standard of encyclopedias. They did a survey uh, about a year ago comparing Wikipedia to the Encyclopedia Britannica to 
to see whether there were more or less errors in Wikipedia. And by the way, the result of that survey was that there was pretty much the same level of error in both encyclopedias. But it's not a coincidence that the people who did that survey used the Encyclopedia Britannica as the sort of old-fashioned traditional encyclopedia against which to compare Wikipedia. So there's nothing like the Encyclopedia Britannica. But I found that the editions of the Encyclopedia Britannica, really uh, beginning in the late 1950s and after, left out a lot of information and a lot of detail which you can find in the earlier editions. And, of course, the reason for this is how many volumes could they have in the encyclopedia? You know, it already has 20 or more volumes. So, you know, there's so much new knowledge that if the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica just kept adding the new details that came in, well, the encyclopedia would get totally unwieldy and you'd need a whole wall just to store the encyclopedia. So at some point, pretty much in the mid-1950s, the editors decided to take out what they saw as older information, less crucial information. Now, I'm not talking about taking out information that's factually inaccurate or correcting mistakes. That's always a good thing, of course. I'm talking about taking out information that is factually correct but was just deemed to be not all that relevant. And I realized this uh, really clearly when uh, my wife and I were at a library sale, and for the grand total of a dollar, we picked up a complete edition of the 1954 Encyclopedia Britannica. And that's been my best friend for research into ancient history. Because if you look up Socrates, if you look up Rome and all of those things, you find great details in there. And by the way, speaking of Rome, if you have had uh, the opportunity to watch any of the HBO uh, series, Rome, which is now in its second season, uh, I highly recommend it. The details uh, in that uh, series are absolutely superb. So in addition to the story, you know, we know, of course, that Julius Caesar was assassinated. We know about the rivalry between Octavian and Mark Antony. But there's an enormous amount of background detail, which Jonathan Stamp, the historian uh, who consulted in the production of the series, brought into it. And I'm sure that uh, he and the people who put together uh, that wonderful series also consulted old Encyclopedia Britannicas, because I can see that in what some of the characters are saying and what some of the people are doing. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in this, you can usually pick these old encyclopedias up for next to nothing, and, and it's well worth it. I also have an Encyclopedia Britannica edition from the 1920s, which is also superb. Second way that you can research ancient history is really the complete antithesis of the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's using the web. And, of course, I don't have to tell you what a cornucopia of information the web offers. But it's extremely important when you research anything on the web that you check your sources. Now, this is always important, regardless of the research you're doing, whether it's on the web, whether it's for fiction, science fiction, whether it's for a, a scholarly book or article that you're writing. Of course, you always have to check your sources. But there's a much greater potential for error 
to be disseminated on the web, and you have to therefore check your sources especially carefully. Let me give you two examples. One comes from the research I was doing for The Plot to Save Socrates, and the other has to do with an article I wrote for an anthology of essays about Superman. First, The Plot to Save Socrates. One of the main characters in the novel is William Henry Appleton. Now, he was a real person. He was a publisher who lived in the New York area. He published Charles Darwin. He published Lewis Carroll. Uh, His Appleton uh, Publishing Company was really the leading intellectual force here in the United States in the second half of the 19th century. And he lived uh, in a beautiful home uh, overlooking the Hudson River, in what we now call Riverdale, New York. It's the northern part of New York, New York City. It's absolutely gorgeous, and he built and developed a home there, which he called Wave Hill. Now, that home has been turned into a museum and a botanical garden. That's well worth a visit, by the way. Really breathtaking scenes of the Hudson. Anyway, in the plot to save Socrates... Uh, I had some characters visit William Henry Appleton back in the late 1880s. And Appleton talks about the people who had come to visit him, the guests he had had in his home. And I had read uh, in more than one place that Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley... Huxley was Darwin's bulldog, as he was known. That is, Huxley was a scientist who did his best to further Darwin's theory of evolution. And so I had read in in more than one place that um, Darwin, as well as Huxley, had been guests in William Henry Appleton's home. And I put that into the novel. Well, very late in the editing process, after the copy editor had gone over the complete novel, I got an email from him in which he said, you know, you're saying that Darwin was a guest in William Henry Appleton's home in Wave Hill, but the copy editor said, I have a feeling that I read somewhere that Charles Darwin had never made it to the United States, that Charles Darwin never set foot uh, on American soil. And I, when I got that email, immediately called up the references that I had looked at on the web, which clearly said that Darwin had been a uh, guest of William Henry Appleton. And I wrote back to the copy editor and said, well, look, here are a couple of sources that say that Darwin had been a guest of Appleton. Well, the copy editor said, okay, look, I'm just raising this, you know, I'm telling you it's a recollection that I have, maybe I'm wrong. Well, there was something about that that sort of stuck in my mind and was nibbling away at the back of my mind because, truthfully, I, too, had a vague recollection, now that I was thinking about it, that I had read somewhere also that Darwin had never come to America. So I launched on a really comprehensive research project on the web And I tracked down every single reference I could. And I found over a dozen references that said that Darwin had been a guest of William Henry Appleton. But I also looked at some of the books that I had in my own library, including a couple of biographies of Darwin. And sure enough, those biographies said that Darwin had never come to the United States. Thomas Huxley had come to the United States. Huxley had been a guest of William Henry Appleton. 
Well, then, how did the web, and why did the web have all of these references to Darwin being a guest of William Henry Appleton when it clearly said in the Darwin biographies that Charles Darwin had never come to the United States? Well, I finally tracked it all down, and it turns out that the Wave Hill Museum and Botanical Garden people put up on their website about 10 years ago a little historical description of Wave Hill, and for some reason, I guess they just made a mistake. They put in that Charles Darwin had been a guest at William Henry Appleton's home. And once this had been put up on the web, other people picked it up and put it up on their websites. So that's why, I mean, you can do a search on this right now on the web. Do a search on William Henry Appleton and Wave Hill, and you'll find lots of places that say that Darwin was Appleton's guest. Well, I contacted the people at Wave Hill. I thank my copy editor, by the way. I took out the Darwin reference. But you know what? If you take a look on the web right now, at least I looked on the web a couple of days ago, and I assume this is still the case, you'll find that not only are there still many references to this erroneous visit that never took place, but the Wave Hill site still has the incorrect information. So this is one of the problems with the web. Even when you tell people to correct something, they don't get around to doing it. Bottom line, anything you see on the web, my recommendation is check at least four times. Quadruple check your sources. Even then, you can't be 100% sure, but you have to go through at least that process. Here's another example. I mentioned Superman, and I wrote an article about why Superman, during World War II, didn't just end the war by taking out Hitler, Tojo, and Mussolini. This had always always had bothered me as a kid. Uh, You know, I like Superman, and I couldn't understand why didn't he do something to end the war? Why let all that bloodshed and all the terrible things that happened in World War II go on? Well, in writing this article, I came upon a very interesting piece on the web that talked about an issue of Look magazine that came out in 1942. Now, if you don't know what Look Magazine is, uh, you know, I can well understand that because it hasn't been around for a while. For many years, it was sort of, uh, you know, another example of Life Magazine. It, it, It looked like Life Magazine, but it wasn't Life Magazine, but it was pretty successful. Anyway, uh, according to this article on the web, there was a a, a little uh, story and cartoon in Look Magazine in 1942 in which Superman did try to end World War II. It was sort of a what-if story. What if Superman tried to end World War II? And as I read this further with great interest, uh, it said that the story had Superman picking up Hitler and Stalin... Joseph Stalin, and bringing them to the world court where they stood trial, and this ended World War II. Well, the first thing that struck me about this, as soon as I got to the name Joseph Stalin, is why would Superman, in 1942, be rounding up Hitler and Joseph Stalin and taking Stalin along with Hitler to the world court? Why is that surprising? Well, because by 1942, the Soviet Union, under Joseph Stalin, was one of our allies. So it would make no sense that Hitler would be 
put into the same category as Stalin for Superman to take out? Well, I, I did some more research on the web, and I, again, it's like the William Henry Appleton story. I found a lot of confirmation for this. A lot of people talked about that article. And in particular, I discovered that there was a book that had been published in the 1980s which cited this article. But it bothered me because it just made no sense. So what I finally did is I found a website which had a complete listing of Look Magazine issues. And what do you know, I found that the article was actually published in 1941. Not 1942, 1941. And that, of course, makes sense because in 1941, Hitler and Stalin were allies. In fact, it was Hitler and Stalin going in and taking over Poland that provoked World War II in 1939. So it's an understandable mistake. Someone just put in a two for a one. But what I further discovered is not only did this website, the original website that I looked at, have the wrong information, but it turned out that the book published in the 1980s, it must have been a typo, had this article as having been published in 1942. So what you have here is an error in a book publication, places on the web pick it up, and this is how incorrect information is disseminated. Now, fortunately for me, that wasn't exactly ancient history. World War II was not that long ago. I wasn't alive then. But uh, I knew enough to know that it didn't make sense that Superman would have been taking out Joseph Stalin in 1942. By the way, a lot of people on the web who noticed this beforehand were trying to say, well, maybe Superman foresaw that there was going to be a Cold War and he was trying to help the United States get a better position. In other words, people struggling to make sense of a fundamentally inaccurate piece of information. So, bottom line, there's no such thing as perfection in research. You do the best you can. To get back to what I said at the beginning, you should still go to libraries. When I was researching the plot to save Socrates, I found a great encyclopedia of the ancient world uh, in the Fordham University Library. And Fordham University, which is where I teach, they actually go back to the uh, late 1840s. And this was something that I could see was acquired by the library in the 1850s. So it's been there all these years. I found some great details there. I found some excellent material in the British Museum museum about Alcibiades, who's one of the characters in my novel. So going to museums is useful. But the two most significant things that I would recommend are, again, old Encyclopedia Britannica's and the web, but check your sources as many times as possible. The Light on Light Through podcast is proud to be part of the Blueberry Network. That's blueberry with no ease dot com. Hey, if you want to make an impact online, check out GoDaddy.com. It has .com names for as low as $1.99. Plus, they have world-class hosting, fast and easy website builders, and much more. And if you mention the special code POD4, that's POD4, you'll get 10% off your web hosting. Or... BLU4, that's Blue 4, gives you 10% off everything else you may buy at GoDaddy.com. And this brings us to the Flashes section of Light On, Light Through. First, 
Hank Bauer, the great Yankee right fielder from the 1950s, died this past week. And when I heard the announcement over my car radio, I couldn't help thinking of Jack Bauer. And speaking of Jack Bauer, I stirred up something of a hornet's nest over on the MSNBC countdown message board earlier this week because I had written a little blog at paullevinson.blogspot.com wondering if Keith Oberman, who, as you may remember, got so upset about the torture that was depicted in 24. So I wrote a little blog post wondering if Keith Oberman would get equally as upset about the torture that was really all over over the last episode of Rome. Now, of course, I don't think he really would get upset about that because he's not really upset about the torture in 24. What's bothering him is Fox News. So take a look at the MSNBC countdown board. Actually, the last I went over there, they closed it. You can't add any more comments. I have no idea why they did that. But uh, take a look at it and uh, jump in there in the discussion. Let me know what you think. Lost returned this past week, continuing its season three. And you know what? I liked it. I thought season one was spectacular, out of this world. I thought season two was a disaster. I didn't think season three got off to a very good start in the fall. But I was very impressed with this first episode of the Resume season three. I think, in fact, it's the best episode Lost has fielded since season one. Finally, I notice that iTunes and the Beatles may be coming to terms finally, which will result in the Beatles OVRA, their great body of work, being available on iTunes. So stay tuned. I think that's a, a very, very good thing. Of course, they've been at each other's throats for a long time because Apple Records, I think, feels legitimately that Apple computer shouldn't have gone into the music business using the name Apple. On the other hand, hey, you know, let's all be friends here. The public is best served, I think, no doubt, by the Beatles music being available on iTunes. Now, speaking of Apple Records and the Beatles, I came across an artist by the name of James Harris, and I'm going to play uh, a recording of his. And tell me when you listen to it, doesn't this sound like the Beatles in their early stages? I mean, here's someone in 2007, I think, who basically has a lot of the energy and style of the early Beatles. Tanya McCreary, I need you near me. I want you to hear me. I'm in love with you. Oh, can't you see? You set my heart free Tanya McCreary You make my dreams come true Wonder if you'll ever know Quite how much I love you so And over time our love will grow As I find new ways let you know I need you near me Tanya McCreary I want you to hear me 
I'm in love with you Baby, can't you see? You set my soul free Tanya McCreary You make all my dreams come true Tanya McCreary, I hope you hear me from across the sea. I'm in love with you. Oh, you gotta hear me from across the sea. Tanya McCreary, you make my dreams come true. Tanya McCreary, I'm in love with you. Tanya McCreary. I'm in love with you. And that's Tanya McCreary by James Harris. I love that music. And you can find out more about James Harris over on the lightonlightthrough.com webpage. Oh, and that's our promo suite. And we only have time for an abbreviated edition on this episode of Light On, Light Through. First, I want to thank Patsy Terrell for doing that great Light On, Light Through blueberry promo. And if you want to hear more of Patsy, you can hear her on artofgraciousliving.com. Second, I want to mention the bigberry.com podcast. That's B-I-G-B-R-R. Y.com has an hour-long interview with me. It's just part one of a two-part interview. Go over to BigBerry.com. You'll love it. And you're going to hear, first and foremost again, a promo from the MikeThinks.com podcast. Mike's latest podcast has a piece on a professor in the information age, I don't want to give anything away. Listen to it. It's at the very end of his most recent episode. And you'll also hear the promo for the Silk Code Patio book that Sean Farrell is now recording. And in a couple of days, there's going to be a sneak preview. You'll find information about that also on the lightonlightthrough.com webpage. So listen, I enjoyed talking to you. It was really fun doing this podcast because, hey, I had fun talking to the people in New Jersey, but I know that there are people out in California, in England, Chicago, everywhere. And one of the nice things about podcasts is you're not confined to a particular locale. So sit back, enjoy, I'll see you next time. the Mike Thinks podcast, www.mikethinks.com. News and current events with an opinion. 
the Mike Thinks Podcast. It's the news you missed. www.mikethinks.com. Coming soon from patiobooks.com. The day started just like any other day. Always does. Until I watched one of my closest friends die. Right in my arms. Nothing I could do. But his death was a beginning, not an end. I'm Dr. Phil D'Amato, NYPD Forensics. And the only way to save myself is to solve the mystery of the Silk Code. Locus award-winning novel by Paul Levinson comes to life in this free podcast novel. Journey into the ancient world, witness the wonder of ages past, and join Phil D'Amato in a struggle against forces both ruthless and unseen. Visit www.thesilkcode.blogspot.com to learn more about the author and the novel. And subscribe today at patiobooks.com.